1: When I was a little girl, my father used to sing a song before I went to sleep. Not a lullaby. He wasn't a lullaby kind of guy. The song was called There's a Hole in the Bottom of the Sea. It's one of those songs that keeps building on itself. There's a hole in the bottom of the sea, and a log in the hole, and a bump on the log, and a fly on the bump, and it went on and on, and we'd sing it together. I've thought of that song so many times in the past 10 years. I've hummed it over and over to myself as I worked. It connected me to my dad, and it seemed like the perfect tune to have running through my head as I sat in my office sifting through the stacks of documents, this story building on itself. There's a city in America, and an agent in that city, a memo from that agent, a student in that memo. I'm Nina Gilden Seavey, and this is My Fugitive. Five years ago, I typed the words St. Louis Fugitive into a search engine. I was digging around for some information about Howard Mechanic, and this video was the first thing to pop up.
2: The FBI never made a concerted effort to check out the possibility of a Ray family conspiracy in the assassination.
1: What I saw was a man standing at a podium. I didn't know where he was or who he was addressing.
2: Instead, it treated the brothers and other relatives almost solely as information sources as to James' whereabouts.
1: He was talking about the FBI's failure to look into a conspiracy in St. Louis to murder Dr. Martin Luther King. This man said the FBI's investigation into King's assassination was flawed.
2: Not in pursuit of the fugitive, but in the search for others who may have been involved in the assassination.
1: I'd later learn who that man was, Robert Blakey. He was chief counsel for the House Select Committee on Assassinations. And the video was of a statement he was making before the committee in the fall of 1978. Not long after I watched it, I visited Blakey at his home in Arizona. I wanted to know what he knew about things the FBI did in my hometown of St. Louis. And why they didn't look more deeply into the King assassination. And how that might be connected to my father's clients, to the students at Washington University, to Howard Mechanic. Blakey invited me in. Before we even sat down, while we were still in the entryway, he said, I've been waiting for 40 years for someone to ask me these questions. Last time, we talked about the Church Committee's investigation into the FBI, the ways the Bureau harassed and spied on anti-war and civil rights activists, and J. Edgar Hoover's ongoing obsession with Martin Luther King. But we also talked about the things the Church Committee didn't ask, how Frank Church didn't allow his committee to probe into the FBI's contention that King was influenced by communists, because if they dug too deeply, a long-running, Highly secret operation would be compromised. Operation Solo. The Church Committee wrapped up its work in April 1976. By then, a growing cloud of conspiracy had gathered around the assassinations of both John F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King. The Zapruder film had been released. The Warren Commission's report on the JFK assassination was being called into doubt. James Earl Ray was insisting from prison that he was not the man who killed King and many people, including the King family, would come to believe him. Here's King's son, Dexter, talking to a reporter after he'd visited James Earl Ray in prison.
3: So when you asked him, did you kill my father in no uncertain terms, and he said, no, I did not. Why do you believe him? Well, I believe him because there's so much new evidence that has been presented uh, to me and my family. Uh, Also, the fact of the matter is, um, he has said from the beginning uh, he was innocent
1: in September 1976, less than a half a year after the church committee reported its findings, the House Select Committee on Assassinations, (HISCA) was formed. HISCA's express purpose was to look into the assassinations of Kennedy and King, and to try to lay to rest the public's growing sense that the truth behind the murders was still out there.
4: Well, of course, the basic question is to resolve uh, whether There was or was not a conspiracy in the assassination of Dr. King and President Kennedy.
1: Congressman Thomas Downing was on the committee.
4: But there are hundreds and hundreds of unanswered questions which must be resolved if we are to convince the public uh, as to what the true facts are uh, in these matters.
1: The problem was the committee was a mess, at least early on. There were fights over who should be in charge, leaks to the press, intense disagreements over how much they should be prying into the secrets of the FBI and the CIA. In March of 1977, Lewis Stokes, a Democrat from Ohio, took over as chairman, the third in six months. And Robert Blakey, the man you heard in that recording at the top of this episode, joined as the committee's chief counsel. Blakey had been a major force in the government's fight against organized crime. He wrote the anti-racketeering laws that were used to take down the mob. And he was mostly brought on to the committee to uncover the truth about Cuba and the mafia's involvement in the Kennedy assassination.
3: Still suffering from a battered public image in the wake of months of internal bickering and crippled by some 20 staff resignations, the committee moved to solve its major problems in a single stroke. It approved Professor Blakey as chief counsel. and then by special
1: At first, Blakey's work was largely focused on Kennedy but in the spring of 1978, a memo was discovered that changed the entire course of the committee's King investigation. It gives the whole story. That's Blakey, from the interview I did with him in 2016. He was 80 years old at that point, and still had a commanding presence. We were in his living room, in front of the fireplace. There was a full suit of armor looking over us, as Blakey explained what was in that memo. It had been written back in 1974 by an agent in the FBI's St. Louis field office. It describes a report from a confidential informant who recounts a conversation with a small-time thief named Russell Byers. Byers tells the informant he was offered a bounty to kill Martin Luther King, an offer made by a local attorney named John Sutherland.
5: A patent attorney in his office was Confederate flags and, and, and the whole shooting match. No pun intended. And he basically was a person who had never reconciled himself to the outcome of the Civil War. He was a racist, states' rightist racist. There's no doubt about it.
1: If this memo about a bounty to kill King was written in 1974, then why didn't it surface until the spring of 1978? The FBI said it was a clerical error. Someone in the St. Louis office put it in a file that didn't have anything to do with the murder of King. They discovered it four years later when an agent happened to be investigating Russell Byers for a local crime.
5: They just misfiled it, is their explanation. But when they found it, they gave it to us. And that's better than throwing it away. The story that the Bureau told us was another agent doing an unrelated file review, came upon it and, you know, and said, good Lord, we got a congressional committee doing this investigation right now. This should be sent up to
1: the committee. Remember, by this time, J. Edgar Hoover had been dead for six years. In Hoover's day, it would not have been sent up to us.
5: Might very well have been destroyed
1: this memo gave Blakey and the committee something solid to go on, evidence of a conspiracy. Not long after they received it, they brought in Russell Byers to testify.
3: Byers testified that John Kaufman, another St. Louis-area criminal he knew, introduced him to John Sutherland in the spring of 1967. Sutherland, a wealthy lawyer, described as a die-hard Southerner who would never let the Civil War die.
1: Most of Byers' testimony was in closed session. But in the open hearing, he explained that Sutherland had offered him 50 grand to kill King, or arrange for him to be killed.
3: Question to Byers. Did you consider Sutherland serious? Dead serious. Did you ask where the money would come from? Sutherland told me he belonged to a secret southern organization which could raise the money.
1: Byers said he declined Sutherland's offer.
3: But added, it struck me as funny that I had gotten the offer, and then King got killed.
1: Byers was close with the bartender at the Grapevine Tavern, John Ray's bar. And Byers' brother-in-law was on the same cell block as James Earl Ray in the Missouri prison and worked with Ray in the prison bakery, the bakery Ray escaped from. Still, Byers told the committee he didn't know Ray.
3: The committee has circumstantial evidence suggesting that James Earl Ray knew people who might have known that money was being offered for King's death. But with Kaufman and Sutherland now dead, the committee cannot show a direct link between the two men and the assassination.
1: More after the break.
0: You can listen to the competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.
1: The committee also called James Earl Ray's brothers, John and Jerry, to testify. Like Byers, both appeared in open and closed sessions. In the public hearings, they hedged and mumbled their way through the questioning, occasionally contradicting themselves, but always proclaiming their brother's innocence. We don't know what they said in closed hearings, We do know that Jerry, who was a real talker, testified for two straight days behind closed doors, without an attorney present. And then, on August 16, 1978, the committee heard from James Earl Ray himself.
4: Extraordinary security is being planned for this week's appearance of James Earl Ray before the House Assassinations Committee.
1: He was brought in from Brushy Mountain State Prison in Tennessee. Only reporters and others with
4: prior clearance will be allowed in. Metal detectors will be used to screen all observers who will also be warned not to move when Ray is brought in and out for his three days of testimony detailing his statement that he did not kill Martin Luther King, Jr.
1: Ray's opening statement lasted 90 minutes. He described his escape in a bread box from the Missouri prison, his flight from Memphis after King was killed, his days as a fugitive until he was captured in London in June of 1968. But he insisted that he did not kill King, that he'd been forced to confess. In fact, Ray said, he'd never heard of Dr. King before the assassination.
3: Then the committee told Ray it had a newspaper with his fingerprint on it and Dr. King's name in the headlines. The newspaper was found near the assassination site the night it happened.
1: Despite repeated evidence to the contrary, Ray stuck to his story. That he hadn't tracked King across the South from Birmingham to Atlanta to Memphis. Yes, he had bought a rifle in Birmingham. And yeah, he had been in Atlanta, but he wasn't there at the same time as Dr. King. Here's Chairman Lewis Stokes.
2: You said in your statement to us here that after purchasing the rifle, you didn't return to Atlanta, isn't that true? That's correct, yes.
1: But Stokes had a couple of laundry receipts from Atlanta made out to one of Ray's aliases on a day King was there.
2: You want to change anything at all about that statement? No, I don't don't want to change that one, regardless of how many documents you have up there.
1: Ray not only denied the validity of the documents stacked up against him, he called attention to other documents damning the FBI, the poison pen letter sent to King that had been made public by the church committee. In his oddly formal way, James Earl Ray said, It was not I who posted Martin Luther King notes suggesting he kill himself. Rather, it was the FBI. Ray's accusations of the FBI might have been self-serving, but he understood that the Bureau was on trial at Hiska, not him.
4: The Bureau was so heavily weighted uh, against King that it affected its... Uh, ability to rationally and fairly carry out the investigations.
1: That's Arthur Murtaugh, a retired agent who'd worked in the Atlanta office and had been assigned to the King COINTELPRO. In his testimony, Murtaugh suggested that it possibly went beyond the FBI not doing a proper investigation, that maybe the Bureau itself was involved in King's murder. He quoted an agent who was with him when they learned that King had been killed.
4: He said something to the effect, we finally got, or they finally got, and I don't know which, we finally got, or they finally got, the SOB.
1: Murtaugh spoke with a reporter from the BBC around the same time.
4: From what I know about the makeup of the Bureau, it was racist, it was right-wing oriented.
1: And those views, Murtaugh said affected the FBI's ability to do the conspiracy investigation.
4: Were you satisfied at the time that the FBI was doing enough to track down who killed uh, Dr. Martin? No, no, absolutely not. There were lots of things that could have been done. Uh, Such as? Such as uh, approaching it on the theory uh, that there was a conspiracy and looking into the uh, possibility of conspiracy. I personally think Ray did it. But I'm not convinced that Ray did not have help in doing it. What makes you think that? Because I don't think there was any investigation or any adequate investigation to determine whether or not he did. And I don't think the Bureau was capable of doing that kind of investigation. They didn't want to do it, and they would not have done it unless they were forced to do it.
1: Which, of course, they weren't. And who could have forced Hoover to do anything anyway? Ultimately, The best Robert Blakey could do was to build a powerful but circumstantial case, at least with the information available to the public. He did try to signal that more had been revealed behind closed doors. There was a day when Blakey questioned Cartha Deloach, who'd been third in charge at the FBI under Hoover. By the time of the hearings, Deloach had been long retired from the Bureau and was working as an executive at PepsiCo. But he was still faithful to Hoover, he wasn't going to reveal anything, certainly not an open session. And Blakey knew it, so Blakey used his questions to make his own statement.
2: Suppose I was to tell you, um, Mr. DeLoach, that this committee, uh, since it began its investigation of this matter, uh, was able to develop, even 10 years after the fact, the outlines of a conspiracy case, Uh, that may well have involved uh, the individuals who uh, plotted the death of Dr. King and may well have involved uh, actually uh, bringing about the events in Memphis. Uh, If that were true, would that lead you to reconsider your judgment uh, that what was done in 1968 was satisfactory?
1: He repeated the hypothetical again and again in different ways. Suppose I were to tell you that we know this, And suppose I were to tell you that we know that. Signaling clearly, we have evidence of a conspiracy. This should have been investigated. We were able to do what the FBI didn't do back in 68. But Blakey couldn't reveal in public all that they knew. That evidence remains under seal and won't be open anytime soon. The best he could do was to leave a trail of breadcrumbs for someone like me to follow. When I sat down with Robert Blakey, nearly 40 years after the Hiska hearings, what I still wanted to understand was why. If there was obviously enough evidence to justify a conspiracy investigation, then why didn't the FBI do one?
5: I think the FBI didn't want to go near a conspiracy investigation, because if they had done it, they would have found their own unlawful activity. That's why they didn't do it. Now, what that means is that they didn't find the real conspiracy because they didn't look for it.
1: They would have found their own unlawful activity. What he's talking about here is the COINTELPRO against King. All the things that you've heard about, but that no one except Hoover and a handful of others knew back in 1968. The wiretaps, the bugs, the letter
5: they would have found the COINTELPRO activity. And they would then have had a civil rights violation. They would have been looking for King's killer, and they would have uncovered a civil rights conspiracy.
1: More agents would be rooting around in the King file, and they would find all the illegal activity. The COINTELPRO against King would be exposed. But not just the King COINTELPRO all of it would have come out. If you start looking into King, then before long, you're going to uncover what they were doing to disrupt other Black activists. Because the FBI's illegal spying and harassment was everywhere. Like crabgrass. The Southern Christian Leadership Conference. The Black Panther Party. You look at King, and suddenly all of COINTELPRO-Black hate is revealed. And at the time, no one... Not the Attorney General's office, not Congress, not even the President of the United States. None of them knew about COINTELPRO. And all of this would be happening just as Hoover was launching his latest counterintelligence program. COINTELPRO knew left, against his most amorphous enemy yet, America's youth. J. Edgar Hoover wasn't going to risk all of COINTELPRO by looking further into the murder of a man he considered no good anyway. So a decision was made. Hang it solely on James Earl Ray and close the files. COINTELPRO goes on. There was one person who might have shed light on all of this during the Hisca hearings. William Sullivan. You might remember his name, Hoover's right-hand man the architect of COINTELPRO, and the author of the poison pen letter the FBI sent to King's home. Sullivan was supposed to testify before the committee, but then, right before his scheduled hearing, he was killed in a hunting accident. A few years earlier, Sullivan told a friend, Someday you'll probably read that I've been killed in an accident, but don't believe it. It would be murder. When I asked Robert Blakey about Sullivan's death, he responded with a shrug.
5: People die. <laughs>
1: yeah, but it made me wonder.
5: Sure, wonder, but, but don't treat coincidence as conspiracy.
1: It's good advice, and I've tried to follow it, but there's one last character who tested my resolve, an FBI agent whose name has come up a few times in this story, J. Wallace Laprade.
3: J. Wallace LaProd was one member of the generation of FBI agents who were Hoover's Hoovers. They worshipped Hoover, and they were at times more Hoover than Hoover.
1: That's Tim Weiner. We heard him in episode three, which was the same place we first met LaProd, planting a bug in Martin Luther King's hotel room in Milwaukee. Two years later, he was in St. Louis running the field office there. His name was on the press release celebrating the arrest of Howard Mechanic and others at Washington University. It was LaPrade's idea to break up Jane Sauer's marriage by sending a letter to her husband from a supposed soul sister. And he was one of the elite few read into Operation Solo. I came to see his presence as a sign, a signal to pay attention. Here, at this place, at this moment, After his time in St. Louis, LaPrade was promoted to special agent in charge of the New York office, the FBI's most prized field post. And then, a few years later, he was fired from that job, just as Hiska was wrapping up. On his way out, LaPrade echoed J. Edgar Hoover's demand for unchecked power one last time.
3: Well, my feeling is that there is an effort to exert political control over what
2: the FBI does, And it's every function. You cannot have an investigative agency where you're told who to investigate, who not to investigate, and how to investigate.
1: That was the conspiracy. An agency that believed it should be able to operate in total secrecy, with no oversight, and no concern for the human costs of its actions. I spent 10 years unearthing those costs. Howard Mechanic is just one of the unknown many whose lives were altered, derailed, or cut short. We've met some of them. Jane Sauer, Joe Eisenberg, Percy Green, Clara Jean Esther, Dr. King. When I last spoke with Howard Mechanic, he talked wistfully about the life he might have had. Law school, maybe a career in civil rights, normal relationships with his family and friends, A life spent as Howard Mechanic, not Gary Treadway. This is not an isolated incident.
3: This is a COINTELPRO
4: program. This is a program. This is what they were trying to do, neutralize the new left, neutralize black activists.
1: This was their goal, neutralize Howard Mechanic. My father was 45 years old when he tried Howard's case. Younger than I am now, And so all of this has endured over nearly two lifetimes. His question, whatever happened to Howard Mechanic, became mine, and trying to answer it just led to more questions. The story kept unfolding. A hole, a log, a bump, a fly. When I was a girl and my father sat on the edge of my bed singing that song, at some point, he'd have to bring it to an end. The hole at the bottom of the sea wasn't going to be filled. Not that night, anyway. He'd say it was time. And he'd turn out the light. And I'd agree to let him go. Fugitive is an original production of Pineapple Street Studios and Odyssey. You can binge all episodes from this series exclusively on the new Odyssey app. Odyssey has all the podcasts you crave, plus the music, news, and sports that matter to you. That's A-U-D-A-C-Y. Download it for free today from the App Store or Google Play. This show is hosted by me, Nina gilden our producers are Kat Aaron, Agarenish Ashagre, Justine Daum, Janelle Anderson, and Maria Robbins-Somerville, with additional production support from Sandra Ellen. The show is edited by Joel Lovell with support from Maddie Sprung-Kaiser. Research and fact-checking by Charles Richter and Ben Phelan. Our engineers are Noriko Okabe, Hannes Brown, and Will Bigwood. This episode features original compositions by Daoud Anthony and Hannes Brown, and music from Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to our executive producers, Max Linsky and Jenna weiss And thank you to each of our guests for joining us to help tell this story. To see photos, FBI documents, and more, follow us on Instagram at myfugitivepodcast, and visit our website at myfugitivepodcast.com.